And I wanted the rest of the world to see what I had seen. I wanted to break those stereotypes about what death row is like and what prison is like and really show how much self-reflection and how much change these guys had gone through. Because I think we imagine, especially with a really terrible crime, that as soon as someone goes to prison around 19, which is when a good number of them wound up on death row about 19 years old, that they just get time stamped and that they're that person even 20 or 30 years later and that they don't change. But that's not true. Um, And I wanted people to see how they had changed. Hey, how are you? This is Scott Bryant Comstock, the Optimistic Advocate, and this is episode 23. And today, we've got a great guest, Tessie Castillo. Tessie is an author. She's a criminal justice advocate. And uh, what brought her to my attention was the book that she wrote, Crimson Letters, Voices from Death Row. And she had four co-authors with her four gentlemen on death row at Central Prison in Raleigh, North Carolina. And in the book, you get the opportunity to, in this three-dimensional way, to experience the humanity, the passion, the grief, the love uh, of these four artists who happen to be on death row. And it gives you, whether you want it or not, it gives you this very different impression of what death row is, how it's portrayed in the press, how it's portrayed politically, how it's portrayed through policy, and then the reality of the people who are there. And Tessie really is has been a bridge from the outside world uh, to the world uh, inside the walls of Central Prison, and it's a uh, it it is it's a riveting uh, read, uh, not just because of the stories, not just because of the what the fascination about um, gentlemen who are on death row. But it's riveting because in the book, Tessie just brings to life humanity. And it's something that we all want to be sharing and celebrating with. But in our society, at certain areas like prison, we cut that off Mm -hmm. and and we shouldn't be. So I'm really excited to have Tessie. We're going to talk about a lot of things today. But let's start (laughs) with Crimson Letters. Let's start with what got you to the point of writing this book. It's a fascinating story. And um, just to put it in its proper context, I think it all started with a Super Bowl party and a bowl of Cheetos. It did. (laughs) I don't remember if it was Cheetos. I'm more of a Dorito person, I think myself. But um, I was at a Super Bowl party (laughs) back in 2013. And being someone who has no interest whatsoever in football, uh, I was kind of hanging out near the food and hoping someone would come over and, and talk to me <laughs> and relieve me from my boredom. And someone did. And he happened to be a psychologist who worked at Central Prison specifically with men on death row to help with their um, psychological and therapeutic needs. And he told me uh, during the course of our conversation that death row had been completely closed to the public for all of its existence no phone calls, no um, volunteers coming into the prison, no classes for the guys, no GED, nothing. And he almost single-handedly had managed to convince the warden, who was a new warden at the time, to open up Central Prison and to allow people to go in there 
and actually work with these guys on healing and on artistry and uh, other things that are offered at most prisons. So, so hang on. I'm trying to let that sink in. So from the beginning of its existence, nothing, no, Mm -hmm. no kinds of humanity recognition opportunities. Oh, they had no library, no exercise equipment. They were allowed one 10 minute phone call per year. And that was it. Whoa. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Keep going. (laughs) So he told me that he had been able to convince the warden to open up central prison to a limited number of volunteers to go in there and teach these kinds of classes. And I volunteered immediately. Uh, I had been working in the field of criminal justice reform advocacy for about 10 years. And I was a writer on the side. I wouldn't even have called myself a professional writer at that point, but I would like to be. So I volunteered for the job and I got it. Uh, And about a year later, because that's how long it took to go through the background check and the uh, orientation, all the things to make sure you're okay to go into death row. I went in um, and I, I'll never forget my first class. There was about two dozen or so guys who had signed up voluntarily to take this writing slash journaling class. And my purpose was I wanted them to write about how they got to prison. You know, What were the life circumstances and the choices that they made that brought them there? And since they had been there, and most had been there for 20 years or more. How had they changed? What had they done with all that time? And so that was what the writing class was about. And I remember walking in that day into this tiny little windowless room in the bowels of the prison. You had to go through corridor after corridor after corridor to get into the middle of it where death row is. Everyone on death row is forced to wear red to symbolize the blood um, because they're all in there for murder. The walls of uh, death row are painted red as well. And so I was there and I was just looking at these guys all arranged in kind of a circle around me and they're looking at me and we're just (laughs) totally sizing each other up. Like, why are you here? (laughs) And it was nerve wracking at first because I was asking them to be vulnerable. And that's the last thing that you want to ask a bunch of men in prison to be. (laughs) So... It took a while for us to build trust, but over time, we were able to start them writing about how they got to prison and and the kind of reflection and growth that they had gone through since they had been there. Can can I ask, because, you know, this, we like to tease out what what is it that's in the soul of amazing advocates like yourself that propel (laughs) forward? So you come in and you sit down, what in the world is going through your head? And what did you say to get it going? And what's going through my head is this sounded like a way better idea at the Super Bowl party when I had a couple of drinks in me. <laughs> um, it was a lot of kind of like, are they going to like me <laughs> sort of thing? You know? yeah. Can I win over this tough crowd? Yeah. Um, but I, I honestly don't really remember what I said, except I introduced myself and I said that I was a writer um, and that I wanted to, to teach them how to write. Uh, and they were just kind of not super excited about it at first. The whole male female thing. What 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 was there any in any feeling in that regard, or was I'm probably not even asking the question right? But I know the question in my yeah, head. Yeah, no, I know the question. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I was worried about that. Yeah, obviously too. And there were no guards in the room with us. There were never any guards in the room. It was just me and them. 
Yeah. Uh, and they were not, they were not in any kind of restraints, totally free, just sitting in chairs. Uh, but honestly, there was never an issue. And not only that, but as we moved through the class, they would choose prompts that they wanted to write about. And then they would write about it while I was away. And then the next week when I came back, we would share the prompts and, and discuss them. And one of the prompts that they selected was women. And I was like, oh man, here we go. <laughs> yeah. I was prepared to turn every shade of red right. uh, when they started yeah. reading what they had written. But not a single one of them had written about women in the context of sex. They had all written about the grandmothers who had raised them or the strong moms or aunts or for some, it was like little grade school crushes that they wrote about, you know, well, my first kiss at like 10 and I was so nervous. <laughs> that was what it all was. And I never had reason to be afraid of any of them. And that, that is an example of the kind of the stereotype image. And yet as you gave that answer, I thought, well, that doesn't surprise me at all. It, you know, that it's, it's like your brother's type thing. But yet mm -hmm. there's that, I mean, you must have burst through so many stereotypes of. Yeah, because even I expected that. Yeah. Even after I had known them, I mean, by the time we got to that prompt, I had been working with them for several months. Yeah. And I still expected something like that. So you're, you're in there, you're doing the writing class. And, and so take us on the journey. Mm -hmm. um, it, it was incredible. Uh, the different personalities that you got to see, because we really dug deep with them and they were willing to dig deep. The ones who stayed, uh, we had a lot of people drop out of the writing class, actually, I think, who just went in out of curiosity and decided, no, I don't, I don't want to go there. <laughs> but the ones who stayed, it was incredible. Like I remember this one guy, his name was Jeremy. He's not one of the co-authors. And he talked with a really bad stutter. And when he would write, he didn't seem to know what punctuation was. And he would write all over the place. Like his mind was just a spool of thread that was completely unraveled. And I had a really hard time trying to piece out what he was trying to say in his writing. And when he read his pieces, he was always stuttering really badly as he read them. But when we switched for some of the guys, I started to realize that they spoke better in poetry and that was a better medium for them. And so I asked him to start writing poetry and he was brilliant as a poet. I mean, everything was gorgeous and evocative. And when he read his poetry out loud, he didn't stutter. Really? No. <laughs> and it just made me think, you know what? What is the world that we live in, this world of all rules and order? And what is it like for someone with a, with a mind like his? Uh, and how would his life have turned out differently if he could have expressed his artistry more and if the world were more like a poem? As you're going through this process, so you're in, what, about five, six months now? In yeah. The, at this point, what what's the reaction of the guards? What are they? Because this is all, I mean, you know, you, you are breaking this new ground and you're mm -hmm. doing a very intimate experience with these with these guys which is probably bringing up lots of feelings uh, for mm -hmm. them and what's the reaction of the you know of the administration that you're working with the first reaction of the guards and this was the first line of crimson letters is they told me not to shake hands with any of the men when i first went into the prison because they would uh, just masturbate with them afterwards but after that experience, I started noticing that the guards uh, were 
hanging out near the class more so that they could listen. And I didn't feel that it was done in a malicious way. I felt like they were genuinely curious and that they were learning things about these men that they had never known before. Um, so there was a, a softening in many ways of the attitude of the guards as we continued the class. So the class continues. And, and when did the idea of doing a book uh, happen? Well, that was long after the class was over. Um, so at the time, I wasn't thinking of any book. I just was in the moment, in each moment that I was with the guys in, in prison. And I wanted the rest of the world to see what I had seen. I wanted to break those stereotypes about what death row is like and what prison is like and really show how much self-reflection and how much change these guys had gone through. Because I think we imagine, especially with a really terrible crime, that as soon as someone goes to prison around 19, which is when a good number of them wound up on death row, about 19 years old, that they just get time stamped. And that they're that person even 20 or 30 years later and that they don't change. But that's not true. Um, and I wanted people to see how they had changed. So I decided to write a letter to um, an op-ed, an editorial, to the News Observer, which is the local newspaper here. And I got it published. And it basically talked about uh, that these men are much more than we think that they are. They're complicated. They have a lot of flaws and they have a lot of strengths and they have redemptive qualities and they have uh, a lot of issues, uh, as we all know, but they're just as human as you and I are. Um, and about a week later, I received a very terse response from the warden of Central Prison. And he said that my services at Central Prison were no longer required and my class was canceled. I was banned from that prison and all prisons in North Carolina. Wow. Boy, this, this on the job learning is uh, quite something. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, okay. So you get the letter says you're done. Mm -hmm. um, but as we kind of can surmise, Tessie Castillo is never quite done. So, <laughs> so what happened? I wrote to the guys. I wrote to all of them that had continued in the class up until that point. And I invited them to just be my pen pal, basically, uh, that I would try to work with them on their writing, um, even from home. And even at that point, I had no idea of, of doing a book. There was no plan to do that. But after a year, almost two years, I think, of regular correspondence with several of the men who had been in my class, I just once again was faced with, I was just getting these letters that were just full of so much insight into into people. There was everything in there. You know, how do you forgive yourself when you've done something terrible? And how do you rise above the circumstances of a, an utterly inhumane life all around you? How do you keep your humanity in a situation like that? And how do you find hope? And all of these answers to life's questions <laughs> that I wanted other people to know. And so I proposed to um, five actually original uh, men who I had been in touch with regularly and were just also brilliant writers, which had nothing to do with me. They were that way when I met them, that we put together a book. And so they agreed. And it took four years because the logistical difficulty of writing a book with six different co-authors, five of whom are in a maximum security prison, <laughs> we had no phones still at that point. 
uh, it was really, really challenging. But after four years, we, we got it done. And the book came out on March 12th, 2020, which I think is a day that no one will ever forget. <laughs> yes. You really know how to time things. I know. <laughs> <laughs> that was my publication date. I'm not lying. <laughs> oh, man. Let's, let's add a little COVID to the, to the mix here. You know, let me ask you a question about about the writing of the book because something you do in the book and I think you do really well is and so for you know for all advocates there there is the challenge of boundaries right and and, and you, you believe in something you're passionate about something and always the struggle of how much do I invest myself in other people's lives and you talk about that in the book because you know because you've got your co-authors who are pouring their hearts out, right? Mm -hmm. And that whole emotional investment and you on the outside needing to weigh, you know, do I set up false promise? Can you talk about that? Because I think that's a dynamic that uh, not in as is, uh, magnified an example as, as you've had, but mm -hmm. in the mental health space, which is a space I work in, go through all the time, you know? Mm -hmm worry about burning, burning out because you get so invested mm -hmm. worrying about over promising, you know, mm -hmm. you want to make a difference and oftentimes you can't. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I struggled with that a lot. Um, at first I was holding back a lot. I was not sharing my own personal anything. I kept everything very professional on my end. And if they wanted to pour stuff out to me, they could do that, but I didn't return that. But then after a while, it was one of my co-authors who, it was George, who wrote me this one particular letter where he just said, look, if, if you don't want to be a real friend, <laughs> um, then let's just stop writing to each other because I don't want you to just help me. I want to help you too. I want to feel needed by somebody else. I want to feel like my advice and contributions and listening ear are valuable to someone else. And that was the first time I had really recognized that. I, I had just sort of thought that if I could provide that space for them, then I was doing them a favor. And I hadn't really thought about the reciprocity issue in that kind of a way as being equally important, if not more so, to them. To be needed um, versus to be heard. Uh, so I started being much more open, um, again, within the boundaries of what I felt was appropriate with them. Um, but I'm, I'm pretty much at this point, like they know as much about me as my closest friends do. Yeah. Uh, and I wouldn't say that that's the, the way that every advocate should go, should go to, <laughs> um, certainly, but that was what I did and I don't regret it. Um, I have become more and more entwined with them as this process has gone on. And we're actually coming out with a second version of Crimson Letters this year. And that version will go even more in depth into these issues of how personal do you get things and how much do you help or get involved with their lives outside of what's happening with Crimson Letters in particular. Um, and I think just one thing I do is I'm very, very careful about my own need for, for self-care. And I make sure that there are certain things in my life uh, that I don't neglect no matter what. And as long as I keep those things going, I feel like I'm able to take on more of the, the emotional 
burden of it without getting too overwhelmed. Things like, like what? Like for me, something that's really important is um, exercising every day. Mm-hmm. And so I make sure that no matter what happens that I, that I make time for that. Mm-hmm. Um, meditation is something I get up early every morning and I take time to meditate in the, those quiet hours. Um, I go outside every day, spend some time outside. I actually don't work on Wednesdays out of choice because Wednesday is just, just my day to do whatever I want. I'm a single mom. So on weekends, I'm taking care of my daughter, but while she's on school on Wednesdays, that's, that's my time. And you don't interrupt that. And I don't schedule things on a Wednesday. That's gold. I've worked in nonprofits my whole life and I've burnt out many times. So I'm, I think each time I get a little bit better about protecting myself against burnout, but I've definitely, I mean, it's been multiple times and it's been bad when it happened. So yeah. I hope it doesn't happen again. I don't know. <laughs> I'm trying. <laughs> What's the name of the book and when's that one coming out? It's going to be Crimson Letters, Voices from Death Row. Same name. It'll just be a new edition. Got it. Got it. Yeah, that's awesome. So, so all right. So you get kicked out. Great track record with the prison system. <laughs> they banned the book also, by the way. They banned the book. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but you go through the pen pal route and and then the book the book comes out and now it sounds like there's a second book. I'm guessing the administration knows about this, right? When the book was published, I sent it to, on March 12th, I sent it to my co-authors and they had it for just a few days before the guards came by and they confiscated it from their cells and they've never been able to have it since. So it's completely banned from all the prisons. So, wow. All right. Well, all right. That, that breaks my heart. Um, have there been any, uh, I know you do a lot of speaking in North Carolina on mm-hmm. justice reform. Are you, do you feel like you're getting on any kind of traction with uh, policymakers, with the, you know, legislators? I, I don't know that. I know you speak to a lot of schools, a lot of churches. What, mm-hmm. What's been the reaction? So we haven't been focusing on policymakers right now. North Carolina is not in a good place to be doing death penalty legislation right now. And I would know because, like I said, I was a lobbyist for this. Um, So I'm just focusing on individual people, like whoever wants to listen. We talk to high schools. We talk to retirement centers. We talk to uh, anti-racism organizations, to universities, to theater projects, just every group you could think of, CEOs, (laughs) random people that I wouldn't think would care about the death penalty. And yet somehow there's a connection there. And Um, So that's what we're doing right now. And I'm hoping that at some point in the future, when we get on the other side of doing this, this second book, um, and a few other things I'd like to get just settled in my life, both personally and professionally, that I can at some point combine my experience with actual policy change and the death row um, issue. Mm -hmm. Uh, Excellent. You know, after after I got the the first time I had the opportunity to meet you to be a part of that session that we had with uh, Ronsley Vaz, you know, several of us thought of you as fearless, mm. and I I don't know if that's the right word. I don't know, but can you talk about and and you know in the whole advocacy space, you know, there is that sense of you know you got to be fearless, and if you're fearless, you can do anything. And I 
I kind of struggle with that. And I just want your take on it. Do you see yourself as fearless? Are you like a superhero? (laughs) I have many fears, so many fears. (laughs) Um, How do you, that's a hard question. You just, you just do it anyways, uh, even with all the fear, you know, because you know that it's, it's worth it or it's going to be worth it when you get to the other side. Um, It's just, it's about perseverance. and looking at the bigger picture and, and looking at the end goal and working towards it rather than not being afraid. Well, I, I think that's, that's gold. That's yeah, that's gold. Because when I think of the arc of your story, at least the part of your story that I know one could ascribe that word fearless, but it's not about fear. And that's what's so beautiful. I think about what you do. Like mm-hmm. you think, well, the left foot goes in front of the right foot and then the right foot goes in front of the left foot is kind of what it sounds like and you just make it happen i want to ask you about some changes you've you've made just personally professionally i guess in terms of uh, of the use of social media and we are such a social media driven society and here i am using social media to talk about this amazing advocate and people are going to say oh i want to connect with this amazing advocate who maybe leaving social media. (laughs) (laughs) So talk about, because I, I, uh, there's a courageous act. I mean, my God, our world is so dominated by social media. What, what led to that for you? I've wanted to leave social media ever since I got on. (laughs) I never, never liked it. Um, I understand the benefits of it a, a lot. Uh, I understand it as a free platform to advertise, as a way to connect with people. I've personally made a lot of connections. I wouldn't know you if it weren't for social media. Um, So there's definitely that benefit to it. But it just, it was, I started to realize how much I used social media as a form of personal validation for myself. And how much it mattered to me, how many people shared my posts and how many people liked my posts and, and how many times a day I was rechecking social media to see if there was a new comment on something uh, instead of paying attention to my daughter or um, reaching out to someone through a phone call instead of just looking at what they had posted on social media and assuming that I knew what was going on in their lives. Um, And the impetus came, it's been sort of a slow bleed (laughs) over time. I've been many times come really close to canceling my social media accounts. And it was fear, speaking of fear, that always kept me from doing it. It was the fear of becoming invisible. It was the fear of becoming irrelevant. It was the fear of um, that I would be letting down the people I advocate for if I wasn't advertising their voices to the maximum, even through a platform that I didn't find personally um, fulfilling for me. So I would sort of justify it that way through, through fear and losing that, that, val- that easy validation. Because I get, if you check my social media, most of the comments are very positive. Oh, you're doing such wonderful work. You're so amazing. And it feels good to get posts like that every day and comments like that, you know? Um, and then I would tell myself, well, I'm doing it for not, it's not about me. It's, it's for them. It's for the, you know, the guys in prison It's for my co-authors. It's, it's to help amplify their voices. But I think the last straw for me or, or the thing that made the final decision 
was I started, I've met a lot of really incredible people through uh, this work that I've been doing. And I started realizing that many of the people I admire the most do not have a social media accounts at all. Interesting. And they run social and they run successful businesses and they run podcasts, some of them, and they do not have social media accounts. And I just thought, well, <laughs> if they can do that, then, then I can do it too. And so I made that decision. And since then, I've actually started reaching out to people through texts and through phone calls. And I've been able to connect to people who I only knew through social media in ways that I never had connected with them before. Like I'm learning that, oh, they're not just doing great and their kids are so cute, but they have cancer which I didn't know. And now I'm able to do things like the other day, my daughter, um, who's seven, we called someone uh, who was a, a social media contact and who has cancer. And my daughter read to her, she read like a, a bedtime story to this woman over Zoom. And the only reason that I even knew <laughs> that this woman might need something like that was because I had actually texted her <laughs> and asked her how she was. So I've been able to connect with people in much, I've been able to connect with a lot fewer people, mm -hmm. but in much more meaningful and deeper ways. Oh, that is so beautiful. And that's such a message that, uh, uh, yeah, there, there's such a push, such a need for likes or posts or downloads or this or that or the other, that that becomes the consuming force. You're, uh, you're fearless, you're courageous, you're all the things we just struggled with trying to define. Uh, and, fearless. <laughs> and it's, well, let, let's put it this way. You fearlessly go into your fear. How about that? Uh, how about I just go into my fear? <laughs> all right. All right. You just go into your fear. Tessie Castillo, it is, it has just been a delight to, um, have you join us today. And we look forward to the, uh, uh, to volume two, I guess, of the Crimson Letters. We'll look for that. And and just uh, strong winds on your journey, my friend. It, uh, it sounds like you're in an exciting place to be. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Can uh, I make one plug? Play, oh, pl oh, you can make more than one plug. Plug away. <laughs> um, so if people want to... Uh, to speak to me or my co-authors or have us come in and do a presentation, which is how we met Scott and how Scott got excited about the work we do. You can reach out on my website, which is tessiecastillo.com and invite us to come and we call into Zoom and, and we can have really incredible conversations about what life is like on death row and, and the kind of growth and reflection process that these men go through. There's also a free book club that we offer where you get a chance, it's a, a five-week book club, and at each meeting you actually get on a Zoom call with one of the co-authors, and you get to have a, like a small, intimate conversation with about 10 people about their lives, and that's totally free, and you also sign up on the website. So we would love to have people join us. That is awesome. And we will put all that in the show notes. And I really, it, and, you know, having had the opportunity with Tessie and, and, uh, uh, the four co-authors, well, I guess it was about a month ago mm -hmm. or so, maybe two months ago, I don't remember. But uh, what I do is, is what I do remember is the conversation and it will just, it will just stick with you in an incredibly positive and life affirming way. So Jesse Castillo, thank you for being a bright light. Thank you. All right. We'll see you later. If you drop on by, you don't have to knock. We're happy to share whatever we've got.